Well, good morning, everyone. We're continuing this morning in our series, Life at 2%. If you've been with us the last couple of weekends, you know that uh, we've been talking about the need to recharge because so often we start our days with that fuel gauge already hovering around empty. And some of us, before we even get out of bed, are already feeling you know, worn out and burned out and ready to tap out. And so we've likened this to the feeling you might have when your phone is about to die. We've all experienced that, right? When it hits 10% and it asks, do you want to go into low power mode? And uh, we say yes, and we try not to look at it any more than we need to and, and uh, manage that screen brightness and all of the things that we can do. But we know that when it hits 2%, the end is near right? The next text, that could be the end of it. And uh, the reality is that what our phone needs isn't low power mode. What our phone needs is to recharge. And the start of a new year is always a natural time for us to evaluate where we've been living our lives in low power mode and to recharge some essential areas. And so this morning, Jerry mentioned, we're going to talk about worry. And I think this is important because if we're not intentional about how we approach the circumstances in our lives, I'm afraid that worry can very easily become the default for us. Now, here's the reality. All of us experience that pull toward worry in some way or another. And maybe for you, this isn't a big deal in your life, but certainly there are things that happen or things that we think might happen or possibly even a season of life where maybe you tend to lean a little bit towards worry. But then there are others who deal with this more consistently, maybe even on a daily basis. And some of you are thinking, man, he's talking to me right now. And maybe you've pegged yourself as a worrier. Well, if that's you, I want you to know that you're not alone. That some studies suggest that even as much as 38% of the U.S. population struggles with worry on a daily basis. That's over a third of us surrendering to worry every single day. And if that's you, maybe, maybe you wish it wasn't, maybe you wish that wasn't true of you, but, but in reality, you'd have to say, it probably is. And I want you to know that if that is you, I am so glad you're here this morning, because I have been praying for you specifically this week that this message would be helpful for you, and that you would find some new ways to fight for freedom from worry. Now, there's a third group of people that I want to recognize before we get going, because even though more than a third of us worry every single day, there's a much smaller percentage of people who deal with uh, something that is known as generalized anxiety disorder. About 3% of the population struggles with GAD, and if that's you, if you struggle with overwhelming, even crippling clinical anxiety, I want you to know that my goal today is not to add to your burden by telling you all the things that you're doing wrong. And then if you just did something different or you had more faith or whatever, that you wouldn't experience that anxiety in your life. Because what we need to realize is that GAD is a whole different thing than what we're talking about today. It's not simply a choice that you're making. There's something deeper going on there. But at the same time, I do want you to know if you struggle with GAD, that I have seen God's word used effectively in the battle against anxiety. And while I don't struggle with that personally, the people who are close to me who do and who have put into practice the things that we're going to talk about today, they have found relief 
through the instruction of God's word. And so that's what I've been praying for you if you struggle with generalized anxiety disorder, that through this teaching, you would find some relief in the battle. I want you to know before we get going also that as we look at different texts in the New Testament, the Bible doesn't distinguish between worry and anxiety like I just have. I'm going to talk about worry today as the topic, but you're going to see the word anxiety come up. You can know that the root word in every one of these texts is exactly the same word or some form of it. Just different translations and different verses, it's been translated differently. But we're talking today about worry. Now, one of the things I love about God's word is that it is not just a list of what not to do. Okay, that's how a lot of people approach God's word, like it's restrictive and it's just a list of don't do this and don't do that. That is not an accurate or at least not a complete picture of the word of God. And while it certainly does prohibit certain things, it also shows us the right thing to do. And oftentimes, we'll even go into great detail to show us how to do the things that we're supposed to do. And that's what we're going to see today. So if you have held a view that the Bible is vague at best or unhelpful at worst, I hope to challenge you in that and change your mind about that today as we look at three different passages by three different authors who are all in agreement on the wrong thing, the right thing, and then very specifically how to do that right thing, okay? And I want to start in Matthew chapter 6. If you brought your Bible, feel free to turn there with me. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some under the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, please keep one of those as your own. But Matthew chapter 6 is a part of Jesus' teaching that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've studied that before. We've studied that sermon before. But here's what Jesus says, starting in verse 25. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. And one of the things I love about Jesus is he typically wastes no time getting to the point, right? Right there in verse 25, he gets right to the command. And this is a command for anyone who would follow Jesus. If you're taking notes, write it down. Don't worry about your life. Now, what we're going to see next is that Jesus is going to take that overarching command, and he's going to break it down into some bite-sized pieces for his audience. He's going to make it more tangible for them. But I want you to remember that the things that he's going to mention next are not an exhaustive list. The command is, don't worry about your life. And now Jesus is going to tell us some ways that that might play out. He says, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Now pay attention to this next line. Jesus is going to begin to tell us now why this is important. Verse 27, he says, Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Can any of you, by worrying, Add a single hour to your life. Let me say this differently. What good is it to worry? You know what worry gains you? Nothing. You know what worry fixes? Nothing. And that's not new information, is it? Like, I didn't just blow your brain with that uh, that passage, right? We all know that cognitively. We know this to be true, and yet somehow there is a disconnect between what we know to be true in our heads 
and the way that we respond in our hearts. And Jesus is very simply reminding us that whatever the problem is, worry is not the solution. It gains us nothing. It fixes nothing. Now let's jump down to verse 31 where Jesus will give one more reason not to worry. He says, so don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So Jesus is making a distinction here between two different groups of people, and he refers to those who don't follow him as pagans. And that doesn't feel very nice, does it? In our current context, we hear that, and it feels unloving and unkind and judgmental and negative, you pagans, right? Like it's just got this uh, kind of some teeth to it, I guess. But understand that Jesus... He isn't intent, he isn't trying to be unloving or unkind. He's simply trying to make a distinction and to say, my ways are different than the ways of the world. And those who are in Christ should act differently than those who are not. The way of the world is worry. Jesus says that's what the pagans do. They run themselves ragged trying to attain this and secure that and get this over here. And it's never enough because there's always something else to worry about. And Jesus says, but I don't want my followers to live that way. In fact, I want you to know that you don't need to live that way because you have a heavenly father who already knows what you need and he will graciously provide it for you. So Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Don't worry. It gains you nothing. It fixes nothing. And it's not how my followers are to live. Now, I mentioned that what I love about the Bible is that it doesn't just show us the wrong thing, but also the right thing. And to see that, I want to turn now to 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is one of my go-to passages in Scripture. In fact, if you've come forward after a service for, for prayer about something that's going on in your life, there's a good chance I've shared this passage with you or maybe even prayed it over you. Uh, And I just want to encourage you, if you have your Bible there, you might want to dog ear this, or if you have one of those fancy red ribbons, maybe just lay it right in the crease at 1 Peter 5, because you are going to need this passage sometime, if not today, okay? But starting in verse 6, Peter says this. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And Peter begins with a word that is so essential in the battle against worry. And it's not on your notes page, but I do want to encourage you to write it down. It's the word humble. Humble. Peter says, humble yourselves. And the truth of the matter is that this whole chapter, all of 1 Peter chapter 5, is about the the struggle between pride and humility in the believer's life. That's the bigger context of 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to draw out just one nugget about worry from the middle of that. Uh, But understand that humility is key to effectively battling worry in your life. And that may seem counterintuitive to you when you think about it, because worry itself can feel like humility, okay? Let's don't rush past that. Worry can feel like humility. Worry often masquerades as humility. When the stress of life begins to build and uncertainty creeps in, we feel humbled by that, don't we? We know that there are certain things that we can't handle, and that is humbling. When defeat is all that we can see, that's a humbling feeling. But understand that what Peter is talking about here is not a feeling, it's a choice, it's a decision. Because when things get stressful or when things are uncertain, we have a choice to make. 
And we can either take matters into our own hand and we can think through all of the different ways this might play out and what can I do about this and how am I going to go about it? Well, if it goes this way, I'm going to do that and this way, I'm going to do something else. And we just grab tightly onto whatever that is and we begin to push forward in our own strength. Or we can release our grip and allow God to lift us up in due time. And what Peter points out in this passage is that that tightening of the grip and dealing with life on our own, this is a form of pride, and it needs to be broken in us. But when we open our hands and we give that over to God, that's that's an act of humility, and it begins to break the cycle of pride and worry in our lives. So here's what Peter says to do in verse 7, just very plainly. He says, cast all your anxiety on him, for he cares for you. What does true humility look like when it comes to dealing with worry? It's casting all our anxieties on God. I want you to write that down. Don't worry about your life. Instead, cast all your anxiety on God. We're not to keep any of it. We're not to look at the situation and to say, well, I I can deal with this part over here. This part is clearly too big, but I'm going to deal with this part. God, this one's yours. He doesn't want us to do that. The, The command is to cast all our anxiety on God, the entirety of it, out of my hands and into his. I heard a pastor on Moody Radio a while back who was teaching on this passage, and he said that when he's praying about a situation that might cause worry to begin to creep in, the test for him is to go to to God in prayer, to, to do what Peter's talking about here, to cast all of his anxieties on God, and then he takes a break, and he walks away from prayer for a while, and he evaluates, and he sees if there's any sense of worry that's still left in him. And if there is, he goes right back into prayer, right back into casting those anxieties on God. And he does that repeatedly until there is no lingering feeling of worry left in him. And I just wonder this morning, what if we took all of the time that we spend on planning and fretting and evaluating and thinking about how the situation might play out? What if we took all of that time, because we all do that, what if we took the time that we, we normally use to do those things and instead we did what this pastor does, that we would cast our anxiety on God. We would practice that true humility until the entirety of our anxiety is out of our hands and into his. Do you sense what a difference that simple change could make in your life? I mean, it could just be revolutionary for your life, I think. Jesus said, don't worry about your life. And Peter said, cast all your anxiety on God. Now I want to show you one more passage to help us understand very clearly how to do this. And I want to go to Philippians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. And you're going to see that he is very much in agreement with Jesus and Peter on this, but he's also going to offer a little bit more detail for us. Now before we get into it, I do want to offer a quick word of caution about this passage because most of you, or at least some of you, are going to be very familiar with Philippians 4.7. It's what I sometimes refer to as a hallmark card verse. And I don't mean any disrespect in saying that toward the word of God. It's just true. Some verses seem to find their way onto inspirational writings and cards and calendars and whatever, and this happens to be one of them. So this is, you know, an example. This is the front of a greeting card that says, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 7. How many of you have heard that verse before? Yeah. 
several of us have. Here's another example. If you prefer the King James Version, the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 7. And it's got the, you know, the placid lake behind it and the sun shining and the trees are in bloom. It's clearly Indiana in the wintertime. Uh, but the, the thing that I want to caution against and the thing that I don't like about this is not that I don't like getting a card that has birds and butterflies and whatever on it. The problem that I have is that's not what Philippians 4, 7 says. Philippians 4, 7 says this. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see the difference? It's the little word right at the beginning, and, and it's the Greek word chi. It's used over 9,000 times in the New Testament, always to connect one thought to another. And you're thinking, man, you must be desperate for sermon content to hone in on that right now, right? But I'm here to tell you, this is really important, and here's why. Because when you send that greeting card, the peace of God that transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, and that person receives that card, and they read that, and they think, not my mind, not my heart. I don't feel any more. I don't feel peace. Like, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he doesn't see what's going on. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. All the while, not realizing the Philippians 4, 7 is the end of a, of a longer piece of Scripture. It is not intended to stand alone. We have to back up to see what's going on before we get to and the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So let's do that. Let's go back to Philippians 4 and let's start in verse 4, okay? Where Paul says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. How many of you here this morning know it's really hard to worry and to rejoice at the same time? Who knows that's true? Some of you came in here this morning with something very heavy on your heart, and you felt that tension as the band came on the stage and they led us in worship, and there was something inside of you that that wanted to reach out to God and wanted to celebrate and to rejoice, and at the same time, there's this other thing, and they are in conflict with one another, aren't they? It's very hard to worry and rejoice at the same time, and I think that's why Paul commands us to do it. Paul says that the first step in battling worry is to rejoice. Write it down. In in the battle against worry, we begin with rejoicing. So what does that look like? Well, he's simply talking about praising God. It's praising God for all of his goodness. Think about all of the ways that God has come through for you in the past, and then tell him about it. And if you can't think of any, write a few of these down. I thought of a few to share with you this morning. He has called us out of darkness and into light, 1 Peter chapter 2. He forgave the guilt of our sin, Psalm 32. He did it with the blood of his own son, Hebrews chapter 9. He is coming again, 1 Thessalonians 4, and we will spend eternity with him in heaven, Revelations 21. I did that really fast. If you want those, come see me after the service. You can write them down. But if you are in Christ, these are just a few of the things that you have to rejoice about. And casting our anxiety on God begins with rejoicing. Then he says this in verse 5. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And that word that the NIV translates as gentleness, it's the Greek word epikaios, and it's sometimes also translated as gentle or moderate or patient or reasonable. In fact, the English Standard Version of the Bible translates this verse this way. 
It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And I think that this is helpful for us because it causes us to think outside of our current circumstance. It causes us to reason. And what is the reasoning for those who are in Christ? Well, it's the fact that if God is for us, who can stand against us? If God is for us, who can stand against us? Paul says, be reasonable. I want you to write that down. Rejoice and be reasonable. The Lord is near. He knows what you need. He is in control. And so we have reason to be reasonable. And then Paul says this in verse 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And so we see here that Paul agrees with both Jesus and Peter. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about anything. We've already heard that. He says, but instead, pray and petition God. This goes back to casting our anxieties on God. We've already seen that as well. But he adds this detail. He says, with thanksgiving. Paul wants us to be thankful. Write it down. That there should be a spirit of thankfulness to our prayers and petitions. And what does that look like? Well, thank him for his goodness. Thank him for his provision. Don't be so overcome by the current situation that you forget all that there is to be thankful for. It's a key part of the process of overcoming worry. And then at the end of verse 6, Paul says this. He says, present your request to God. So after you've done everything else, rejoice, be reasonable, be thankful. Now, present your request. Write it down. It's the last thing. Present your request. And it's not that there won't be moments where something is going down right now, and I need to reach out to God, and I just need to cry out to him to intervene right now, right in this moment. And God is big enough for that, and he has grace for that, and I believe that he still honors that kind of prayer request. But here's the deal. Paul's talking about a regular pattern of prayer in our life, that when we think about the way that we pray on a daily basis, It should look like this. Don't just jump right to the asking first. One of my biggest frustrations as a parent is when my kids' first words to me are, hey, Dad, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I go there? Can I eat this? Can I watch that? Can I spend the night at who? Can I, can I, can I, can I, can I? And my response to them often is, I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. How are you? And that's just my passive-aggressive way of parenting my kids I'm not suggesting that you should do the same, but the point is, like, I'm a real person. (laughs) I desire relationship. I am not just the junk food genie or the man who grants all of your wishes, right? I want to know how you are. I want to know that you want to know how I am. And I am in no way suggesting that God gets frustrated when we ask him for things. I just want us to remember this is a relationship. God wants to hear your questions. But he also wants to hear your rejoicing. He wants to see your reasonableness. He wants to hear your thankfulness for all that he has already done. Don't skip that and just jump right to the asking. But after you've done everything else, then present your request to God. And then that little word in verse 7, Kai, and, meaning once all of this has taken place, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. When you have made this a pattern of your life, saying no to worry, 
and responding in humility and then following the pattern that Paul lays out for us, then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to end this morning with three truths that I believe will be helpful uh, to you to help you recharge your peace. And before I do that, I just want to ask, uh, how many of you get to this point in the sermon and the pastor says, I have three points, and you're thinking, dear Lord, when is this going to end? Be honest. We've all felt it. Who feels it? Anybody feel it this morning? Everyone, I want you to look at someone next to you right now. Look them in the eye right now and tell them it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's not your fault. It's okay. Let's go. Three truths to recharge your peace. Truth number one is this, God values you. God values you. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus uses two different illustrations to show us this. He talks about the birds of the air and the fact that they neither sow nor reap nor store in barns, and yet God provides for them. And then he talks about the lilies of the field and the fact that they neither labor nor spin, and yet even Solomon in all of his glory was never dressed in as much beauty as them. And Jesus says, if God cares that much about birds and grass, don't you think he's going to take care of you too? Like, don't you think that you are, don't you know that you are so much more important to him, that he values you so much more than the birds of the air and the grass of the field? God values you. And then Peter builds on that same foundation when he says that we can cast our anxiety on God. Why? Because he cares for us. Write it down. God cares for you. And I wonder if you have ever stopped to consider that there are an estimated 7.6 billion people on planet Earth. I can't even put my mind around that kind of a number. That's a lot of people on planet Earth. And yet God knows you intimately. He knows your name. He knows your story. He knows your situation. He knows your future. And he cares about you. And I just want you to recognize that if you have ever thought that, man, with all of those people, God certainly is too busy to be bothered with my little problem, that is not a biblical view of God. He clearly calls us to cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. And finally, Paul reminds us that in the battle against worry, God is near. Write it down. God is near. He is not far off. He has not left us to figure things out on our own. He is near. And listen, if you don't believe that God sees you as valuable, if you don't believe that he cares about you, if you don't believe that God is near, or maybe you don't even believe that God exists, then I can see why your, see why your default setting might be to worry. Because if God's not real or he's uncaring or if he just doesn't like you, like, I get that. I get that maybe, you know, you wouldn't have hope or that you would fall into worry. But here's the thing. If those things are true about the God you know, then we're not talking about the same God. Because the God of the Bible did everything necessary to free us from the bondage of worry. He valued us so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He cared for us so much that even while we were still sinning, Christ died for us, and he is near to us. In fact, he is so near to us that he has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit, and if you are in Christ, his Holy Spirit is in you, guiding you and convicting you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, and he is reminding you of a day when all of this life's worry and trouble are coming to an end, and friends, I believe that day is coming 
soon. And we have reason to hope. When my family was living up in Michigan, there was a group of six or seven boys from our church who, for whatever reason, enjoyed making fun of my youngest daughter. And so the typical routine was we would go to church, we would come home from church, and Jayla would come home in a pile, just broken and defeated, and she would recount how these boys would target her and make fun of her and mock her. And so we would approach the parents, we'd ask them to deal with it, they'd talk to their boys and get a completely different story that it was Jayla's fault and that's not how it happened and nothing was ever done about it. And so on and on this went, the same pattern, until one day, one Saturday afternoon, when for whatever reason, these boys were at the church, and Jayla went over to see what was going on, and, and per usual, she came home in tears, broken, and, uh, and the same story. Dad, they just, they just mock me, they make fun of me, they tease me, and I said, this ends today. And I said, we're going back over to the church, and I want you to invite those boys to come over and play. And I'm going to stand outside the door, and I'm going to listen. And I want to hear this for myself. I want to see what's really going on. And so that's what we did. We walked over to the church and I tucked in tight to the door. And as soon as my daughter Jayla came into view, I heard it for the first time with my own ears as these boys began to mock my daughter and to make fun of her and to tease her for the way that she talked. And in the midst of that happening, I stepped into the doorway and I said, hey, and I kid you not, one of those boys dove into an open closet and shut the door behind him. And I very kindly and compassionately explained to those little punks <laughs> that the next time my daughter comes home crying, I'm coming to find you. And you're going to answer to me. And as Jayla and I walked back home, she was beaming, smiling ear to ear. And this is why I tell you that story. As we walked into the kitchen, Jayla gave her mom a big hug, and she said, my dad is awesome. And Genesis Church, I want you to know this morning that if you are in Christ, your dad is awesome. You have a heavenly father who is awesome. He sees you. He values you. He cares about you, and he is near to you. He is your provider and your protector, and he has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And so if you have found yourself this morning recognizing that there is a pattern of worry in your life, I just want to challenge you this morning to be faithful to the words of Jesus. Don't worry about your life. Be faithful to the words of Peter. Cast all your anxieties on God. Be faithful to the words of Paul that as we move throughout worry, that we would follow the process that he lays out for us in Philippians chapter four. That's how you overcome worry in your life. Would you commit to that? Even today, if there is something that's causing you worry, I wanna challenge you to confront it biblically, to confront it humbly, and in doing so to recharge your peace. One last thing, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, whether you're here with us this morning or maybe you're listening online right now, I want you to know that these promises, these things that we've talked about this morning, they are exclusive to those who are in Christ. But the beauty is the invitation to come to Christ is anything but exclusive. 
He has invited you. He has extended that invitation to you, and you can receive that invitation even today. And the peace that goes beyond understanding can be yours. I'd love to talk with you more about that after the service, or again, if you're listening online, shoot me an email, and we can discuss that way. But right now, I just want to pray for those here who are ready to think and act differently about this topic of worry. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. And I want to ask that if there is anyone here this morning who came into this place just feeling the crushing weight of worry on your shoulders, would you be willing just to put your hand in the air right now? I'm not going to call you by name or call you out. I just want to know who you are so I can pray very specifically for you. And so, Father, right now, I see these hands and so do you. And while I don't know the details of the situation, Lord, I do know that your word is very clear, that Jesus said that in this world we will have trouble, but that we can take heart because you have overcome the world. And while every hand that went up in this room is a different expression of that trouble, the hope for each of us is the same, that you overcame the world, that you are coming again, and there is a day that we can fix our eyes on when Christ will be revealed. Your grace will be given, and we will spend an eternity with you in heaven. Father, until that day, we want to be faithful. And so I pray that if there are those here today who have recognized a pattern of surrendering to worry, that today would be a, a, a mark, Lord, a line in the sand, so to speak, that we would say, I'm going to approach this differently. I'm going to approach this biblically and humbly, and I am going to take worry head on starting today. Lord, find us faithful to that. And we so eagerly look forward to the peace that goes beyond understanding when we approach you in this way. We love you, Father. We cannot wait for Jesus to come. We say, come, Lord Jesus. We are ready when you are. It's in Christ's name that we pray.